All right, folks, we are ready to get started. Thank you to those who are joining us online. Thanks to those that are in the room. Today is going to be our final um, equip of the spring uh, starting next week. Uh, those that are watching with us online, we'd love to have you starting next week. Um, multiple Wednesday nights, not every Wednesday night, but multiple Wednesday nights through the summer, we're going to have fellowships for our church. I'm not going to teach. We're not going to do anything. We're just going to have different, we have um, probably 10 different fellowships planned in June, July, and August during the summer. Truth be told, we just need to be together. Uh, this, it's been a long uh, 15 months. Sunday, uh, we're having a cookout outside. We've, if you're new with us, we've traditionally done that at the beginning of the summer anyway. And so we're going to do that outside. It starts at 615. Uh, we've got some men in the church. They're going to cook hot dogs. And we're going to have chips and drinks. We want you to bring side dishes to share with people. And um, you, can, uh, you can bring that. And there'll be games outside. And bring your lawn chair, uh, your foldable chair, and hang out for as long as you want to hang out. Uh, I won't be here next Wednesday. I'm going to be at the Southern Baptist Convention. I told you about that on Sunday morning at the, uh, our Sunday evening at our members meeting. Uh, but... Uh, That'll, that'll still be going on. And then on Sunday morning, inserted in the connector is going to be a list of all of the fellowships that we're doing. A lot of them are here. We're going to have an ice cream freeze off this summer. Uh, we're going to have a game night this summer, but we're also going to go some places. We're going to do a Tides baseball game one night. We're going to do a bowling night. We've rented out like half the bowling alley. We're going to do a bowling, a bowling night uh, over in Western Branch. So lots of things for us to do together as a church just to be together because, man, we have missed being able to, uh, to be together uh, during the pandemic. And now that we're free to do so, we want to we have a lot of those things planned. We will be back on Wednesday nights um, with an unannounced equip series. It's unannounced because I hadn't decided what we're doing yet. But um, you know, and, uh, in September, after Labor Day, we will, uh, we will be back together. Uh, to, uh, to, to pick up on Wednesday nights with, with our uh, equipped teaching. So tonight is going to end our series on a survey of the last things. And uh, I'm going to teach for about half an hour. That's what I have planned. And I warned you I was going to do this last week. We've not tried to do this since, um, uh, since we've been in here and been live feeding equipped stuff. Uh, but I'm going to try to take some questions, which is why we have the microphone set up, because you will have to ask the question in a microphone so the people at home can hear you, and people watching this recorded will be able to hear you later. And I have no idea why I would choose this subject to be my first question and answer that's going out live with people. So you may get an I don't know, because folks, I don't know, okay? But I'm going to do my best. I'm gonna, so what I want, hope to get is like some clarifying questions, and maybe I can help clarify certain things for you. And we can walk through this stuff together. So let's pray, and then uh, we're going to dive in. Father, would you bless this time that we spend? Thank you for this uh, uh, winter and spring that we've had in Equipped Together, um, that uh, we've been able to be in the room. I'm so glad to be teaching people in the room, but also via technology, having the opportunity for people to watch uh, all over, to be able to listen later on their commute. And uh, we pray, God, that this has been edifying these, these uh, months together this spring. And then this last four weeks, thinking about uh, the last things together, I pray, God, that you would 
continue to solidify in our hearts that which is of first importance and uh, that you would continue to help us to be uh, firm in our convictions about what we think the future holds uh, as it relates to some of the uh, less important things uh, while also being gracious uh, and generous to those with whom we would find disagreement even within our own congregation. And so, Father, would you help me tonight as we um, pick up one final subject and then answer some questions today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I wanted to talk about this last week because I didn't get to talk about it last week. What, I've just, what I did was take this subject and expand it a little bit so I could get through this in about 20 to 25 minutes or so and then be able to, to have some uh, additional time. I was, gonna, I was hoping this week to uh, broach a couple of additional subjects when I had originally planned this outline, but both week two and week three took me longer to get through than I had anticipated, and I should have known that. Four weeks was just not going to be enough, but it's what our schedule uh, provided for. So the question that we're going to be answering tonight is, what is the relationship between Israel and the church? And is Israel kind of adjacent to that. These are really in a lot of ways the same question. How you answer the first one often dictates how you answer the second one. Is Israel or how important is Israel in in the end times? So this subject, so this is why I want to think about the doctrinal question first and then we'll think about how that doctrinal question then plays out into um, these various models of end times doctrine that we have been talking about for the last four weeks. So the first thing that I want to do is tell you the three main ways the church has approached this first question. What is the relationship between Israel and the church? Um, because as, as I said four weeks ago, um, we tend to be somewhat myopic in our understanding of things concerning the faith. Uh, I have a tendency to do this, okay? Uh, you probably have a tendency to do this, and that is uh, we think that Christians have always and universally believed what I believe, that all Christians approach this subject the same exact way uh, I do, particularly if you have been in a church that has held a very strong opinion on this. Now, I will say this church does not. It is not in our core documents, either the Baptist faith and message or our core beliefs or core values uh, how, where we come down on this subject. And so you can have a different opinion from me and still be a faithful serving member of this church and we can get along uh, well together in this. But some churches do hold, hold a very strict position uh, as it relates to this. And maybe you've been a part of one of those churches. And if you have, it could be that you think this is, this is the only way people think. And what I, the whole point of doing these four weeks has been to say, there is a broader church out there that may disagree with you and we can still all be the church and recognize we're all the church uh, together in this. So this is the kind of the three ways the churches have thought about the, the relationship between Israel and the church. And, and really wanna, I'm gonna just kind of progress through these. So the first is what's known as replacement theology. That's the easy way of saying it. Um, the doctrinal word is, is actually super secessionism but just replacement theology. And the reason it's often called replacement theology is because that's exactly what it believes, that the church has replaced Israel. 
that God was doing something in Israel that distinctly changed um, with Jesus. Now, different people in all three of these categories I'm going to give you uh, would say that certainly something distinctly changed with Jesus, okay? Uh, and they'll actually put it at different places. Some say that it happens at the Lord's Supper. Some say that it happens uh, at uh, the cross or the, the garden tomb, the resurrection. Some say it happens at Pentecost. Regardless, those, all, those are all things happening within uh, a matter of days or weeks within each other. Uh, but re replacement theology would say the Old Testament is about Israel, the New Testament is about the church, and never the two shall meet, okay? That these are distinct groups of people and that one has fully and permanently, in most cases, fully and permanently replaced the other. So that, uh, think about it like this, and this is probably a, a, a less than best picture of putting it, but I'm, I'm pressed for time. That Israel had its chance and it messed up. <laughs> so because Israel had its chance, didn't recognize Jesus, didn't usher in the Messiah, and the, the gospel was preached first to the Jews, right? Which is something that Jesus says. It's something that Paul establishes both in Romans 1 and in Romans 15, that the gospel was preached first to the Jews and the Jews rejected it. And so now onto the church and the church is now this distinct thing under its new covenant and that God is no longer and ever doing anything with uh, ethnic or national uh, Israel. Most often these people end up being um, post-millennialists. So if you'll remember post-millennialism, the idea that Jesus inaugurated the millennial reign of Christ, you know, again, Lord's Supper, resurrection, Pentecost, most would probably say Pentecost, um, that that's when that, that's when that happened and that we are in the millennium and that we're going to see this progressive uh, spread of the gospel around the world until we're really living as if Jesus is king on earth, kind of in a real eth um, ethical way. We'll, we'll see, while not everybody on earth will be Christians, many, 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 most even people will be, and that'll kind of be the dominant view. And so not all post-millennialists are uh, subscribed to replacement theology, but, but many do. This is where most of them uh, would land. I, if you'll remember back, I told you there's not a whole lot of post-millennialists around anymore. It was a uh, very popular theology in the early stages of American history. It was popular during, uh, in some places during the Reformation. Uh, World War I, World War II kind of did away with that. There's a resurgence that we're seeing uh, in some of those uh, ideals, but they're still very much the minority in Christian thought today. The second is dispensational theology. Now, we've used the word dispensational a lot, particularly as it relates to uh, last week talking about the rapture. Uh, talking about the tribulation or the great tribulation, the, the seven or three and a half years, depends on who, uh, which way you want to look at it, uh, that, um, that pre-tribulation, pre-millennialists believe uh, in a secret rapture of the church at the beginning of that time or at the middle of that time, uh, and, uh, and then a literal millennial reign of Christ, so that Jesus returns before the tribulation, maybe in the middle of the tribulation, uh, or, uh, but definitely before the, before the millennium and before the worst parts of the tribulation. Most of those people are dispensationalists. What, and I've used that term and I explained it a little bit, but I want to explain it in the context of this question. 
Um, most dispensationalists actually start with this idea. They start with this question that what is the relationship between, uh, between the church and Israel and then progress from there. And depending on which, and I, I showed you this book, Progressive Dispensationalism, which is probably in the last 25 years or so has become, uh, at least within academia, the most popular version of dispensationalism. There's two previous versions, um, classic dispensationalism, reform dispensationalism, where we've seen some adjustments to it. But here's what they would say. They would agree with replacement theology, that the church and Israel are not the same thing, that these are distinct groups of people, right? Where they would disagree um, vehemently disagree with replacement uh, theology is that the church has not replaced Israel. That the church is a, this is the word most often used, that the church is a parenthesis in what God is doing in Israel. So in the Old Testament, God is at work in Israel through the law and the prophets, restoring people to himself. Jesus comes, ushers in the church age, and the church age is, is this parenthetical uh, period of time that obviously since Jesus hadn't come back is at least spanning 2,000 years and is going to span until the time of the rapture where God is, is primarily at work within the Gentiles. While there are some Jewish people within the church, majority of them are within the Gentiles and God is at work within the Gentiles bringing in uh, the full number of Gentiles into the church. And then after the rapture, God returns uh, to doing what he was previously doing. And again, these are, these are in many ways oversimplifications of some doctrines, okay? Uh, but that God would return to doing what he was doing, to fulfilling the promises that he had made previously in uh, the covenants to Abraham, the covenants to David, and in other promises made by God to ethnic or national Israel um, through, the, through the prophets, right? So the church and Israel are different in both of these first two, but that is the only similarity that they share. The uh, replacement theology says, nope, it's, it's a hard and fast. God is no longer concerned with Israel any more than he is concerned with uh, any other people group. God would still love them as much as he loves any other people group, desire for them to be saved as much as he would any other people group. But there's no distinction that has been replaced. Dispensationalists say, no, God is, God is still working in Israel uh, and that the church is in a side of that. Now within, as a parenthetical period, within dispensational theology, as, as that has progressed over the last hundred and, really in the mainstream, 115 years or so uh, in, in all the way back to its origins, maybe 175 years or so, um, there has, there has been a blurring of the line. Okay. That, the, that as dispensationalism has gone through two major changes, uh, in the last century, that line between really that bracket, that parenthesis has softened some, uh, to the point where when you get to progressive dispensationalism, which I told you in week one, like if you're going to be a dispensationalist, it's great. You buy this book. Because I think this, is, this has a lot of great arguments in it. And one of the things that book does is soften some of that line a little bit and see some of the fulfillment of 
uh, Old Testament promises to Israel in Jesus, if not fully, at least in an inaugurated sense, and they will be more fully um, known to Israel during either the time of the tribulation or specifically during the millennial reign of Christ, okay? So replacement theology, dispensational theology, both see Israel and the church as very different, but obviously their, their current relationship one says one has replaced it. The other says it is just a parenthetical period of time, a dispensation. It's where the word comes from. It's a dispensation. It's a period of time. And God's going to go back to doing something else uh, dear, after, the, after the rapture. The final is covenant theology. And covenant theology says the church in Israel are not necessarily the same thing but are all part of one group. And that is that they are the people of God. That God is not telling a broken, a, a story that has a parenthesis or telling a story that has really one testament and then another, that God is telling one story of redemption from Adam to um, the millennium. And that story is one of promise and fulfillment that God is promising to do something all the way back to Genesis 3, um, including uh, God's promise to Noah, God's promise to Abraham, God's promise to uh, David, God's promise through Moses and the law that God is promising to do something, and then progressively fulfilling that, leading up to the, the, at least an inauguration of the fulfillment in Jesus. There is, within covenant theology, just as there's within dispensational theology, different categories and camps. There are some hardline covenant theologians that seem to, that really get close to replacement theology. There are some that actually get close to progressive dispensationalism. Uh, this book, Progressive Covenantalism, which is probably the hardest word for me to say, covenantalism. Progressive covenantalism is these actually, because of, the, because of the genre, everything in my office is done by genre and then it's alphabetized, which I've been told is not the right way to do it, but it's the way my brain works. So it's the way that I do it. So these books, because they both talk about theology and they both start with the word progressive, sit right, right beside one another, right? And I, I find that actually interesting because this, these two books sit right beside each other, not only on my desk, but they sit right beside each other in the scope of theology, all right. So what's happened over the last 30 years or so is dispensationalism has moved towards the middle and covenant theology has been moving towards the middle to where at times the line has really blurred between the two as, as kind of the lines of dispensationalism have, have softened and the lines of covenantalism have softened some, but there are still some distinct differences within covenant theology, even within progressive covenant theology, the idea is that the promises of God to Israel are fulfilled both, uh, are fulfilled in both Jews and Gentiles being part of the one people of God in his purpose of redemption. That God is telling this one story to redeem one people. And so while dispensationalists, for instance, would see and and replacement theologians would see in, let me just go to the very end, in, in the final kingdom, right? Very often they will see a distinct Israel and a distinct church. What 
covenant theologians and particularly progressive covenant theologians would see is that there has never really been a difference at all that what's happening is the relationship between the church isn't one of direct secession or one of disjunction, but one of mediated con- uh, continuity. That, that God's telling this story from beginning to end. He's redeeming a people from beginning to end. And there is a fundamental change that happens in Jesus. And what because of what happens in Jesus, now there's a grafting in, to use Paul's language, there's now a grafting in of people who were originally excluded, but it's still one tree, to borrow from that, to borrow from that metaphor, right? There's one tree, Gentiles are now grafted into that one tree. It's not that God cut down one tree and planted another, which is what replacement theologians would say. And it's not that God has somehow still growing this tree over here while kind of growing another tree beside it or outside of it. And that's probably not the best way to put it. Um, But the idea is within covenant theology is that the church is the new covenant community that Israel looked forward to. That that Israel was in in many ways looking towards, and I say this all the time at the pulpit, right? When I talk about Old Testament salvation, that, that people within Israel, Old Testament saints going back all the way to the beginning are saved looking forward to the fulfilled promises of God. And where do we find the fulfilled promises of God? We find the fulfilled promises of God in Jesus. So replacement theology, dispensational theology, and covenant theology uh, all have places within the church. They will rise and fall within popularity uh, as theology shifts and changes uh, with time. And, And don't be afraid of that term, by the way. Don't be afraid of the idea that we say that Certain theologies, doctrinal emphasis, rise and fall and, and become less more. So, so every one of us believes something that the majority of Christians in the church didn't. But get, let's just recognize it like this. Um, we're Protestants, folks. And for a very long time, we didn't exist on, on the earth, right? Not only are we Protestants, now we're, we're Baptistic, okay? And... While there was believer's baptism early on, believer's baptism in nearly every case, I mean, there are some places that you see it, but for nearly every case, believer's baptism disappeared from this planet for 1,200 years, okay? So it, it's not a bad thing to say that, that things come and go, all right? And, and they have, and some to the good, and maybe some to the bad. Um, and as these things have happened, as it relates to uh, this doctrine, these things continue to shift, but they all find their place within the broader church. And there are godly Christians that would hold uh, to each of these uh, three positions. And then even within those positions, as we said, there's been softening of lines, there's been additional camps formed. We just don't have time to go through all of those. So we find ourselves in one of those three, as I've taught it, I've, I've, tried to present every one of them fairly over the last four weeks, every position fairly, and then tell you what I am. I tend to, I tend to be a progressive covenantalist. Okay. Sometimes people will ask me if we're talking my office, I'll say my doctrine exists in between these two books. <laughs> if there was a book that existed in between these two books, because there's some things that I love about this book. I mean, some, some things, and you know, there's times that I'll go back and I'll read this. I'm like, oh yeah, that's really, really good. 
Um, and then I'll read the response in this book because this book was written after this one. And I'll be like, oh yeah, that's really good too. And so I find myself oftentimes teetering back and forth uh, be- between, those, between those two things. Um, let me just, so, so then here's the question. It, based off of that, we, we develop a theology of the relationship between the church and Israel. Then we ask the question, well, what does that mean for the end times? Because all three of those people are going to hold to a different idea of, of how important Israel is in the end times. Now, let me define a term really quickly. When I say Israel, what do I mean? Because I say Israel and you may hear one thing, but I may be meaning something else. And when I say Israel and when another pastor or theologian or somebody teaching the Bible says Israel, they may be talking about something else too. So most often people are referring to one or two things. Sometimes they're talking about the same thing. Um, Israel is when I refer to it, when I'm thinking about Israel, I'm talking about ethnic Israel, those who are direct descendants of, um, the, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? That, that these are the Jewish people that have existed as an as a ethnic people group that had a distinct covenant with God in the, in the Old Testament, okay? Some people say Israel within the last 80 years, they say Israel, and what do they mean? They mean a geographically defined location where some ethnic Israelites live, but not all ethnic Israelites live, and it is a modern state. So when we ask, is Israel important to the end times, there, there is this question of which Israel are you talking about? Because sometimes we're saying, we may say yes, Sometimes we may say no, different theologies are going to come down in different places answering those questions. If you're talking about ethnic Israel or if you're talking about the modern state of Israel that's existed since 1940, I'm about to get my history wrong, 1946, 1948, mid-late 47, mid-late 40s. We're going to go with that, right? I said 46 or 48, and if it was 47, then I I split the difference, right? Um, So it... It depends on which one of those things you're talking about, and I'm going to try to help us there. So let's, let's go to, um, first, let's just think about those that would ascribe to uh, replacement theology. Here's what they're going to say. What do you think they're going to say? <laughs> they're going to say no to everything, right? This is what most post-millennialists would say. No. There, there is, there is, they would find nothing in Revelation at all from a future tense that would deal with Israel. Um, most of them are going to be preterist, which I introduced in the first week anyway. They're going to see all, just about all of the fulfillment of uh, uh, judgment and, and um, uh, persecution that we see being told in Revelation in the first century anyway. And they would say that ethnic Israel is on the level playing field with everybody else and uh, they're no less or more important now and won't be in the end times. And certainly the modern state of Israel that's existed now for the last uh, 80 years or so is also um, not, not, it is no more or less important than any other uh, geographically contained boundary uh, on this uh, planet. All right. Now, again, 
Not a hugely popular opinion, uh, in, uh, particularly in American theology, uh, but it, it was at one point. People had, people had completely written off, for, for a good chunk of Christian history, people had completely written off the idea that there was anything necessary for Israel at all. So for, we could say the dominant position for at least 300 years in Western Christianity, European and American Christianity was Israel doesn't matter at all. All right? That, that was the position. Now the dispensationalist position. Dispensationalists would completely disagree, right? And say yes to the first, all dispensationalists, whether they're a traditional dispensationalist, a classic dispensationalist, or a progressive dispensationalist would say, the first category, if what we're saying Israel is the ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then yes, particularly as it relates to like the throne of David, the land that they were promised, all of that, right? That absolutely these people um, matter, that, that that group of people matters for the end times. Some dispensationalists, not all, but some, uh, have put a lot of stock in the modern state of Israel and see the modern state of Israel actually as um, the generation of Matthew 24. Now, when I presented Matthew 24 a couple of weeks ago, I presented it from a different understanding. But the dispensationalist understanding of Matthew 24 uh, is that, that, that the, the lesson of the fig tree that Jesus talks about, um, that the, the generation will not pass away until these things take place, um, more traditional and classic dispensationalists will take that all the way back to 1940, mid-1940s and say it was here. Like that was the start of that. And so somebody that was alive for that is still going to be alive when all of these things happen that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24. So we're in that parenthetical period, that church age, and God will return to his people, Israel. He's going to give them uh, the promised land. He's going to rule, like physically rule on the throne of David during the millennium. All the ethnic promises, all of the land promises, all of the worldly blessings, all of the ruling, the nations, all of that that you read in the Old Testament finds its yes in most of it, in the just about all of it, in the millennium. That the millennial reign of Christ and, and that Israel and the church, Israel and Christians that are alive during the millennium are going to be distinct groups of people. That it is Israel that is going to reign alongside of Jesus um, and, um, and, and rule and judge rule and judge the nations. And that God was going to fulfill all of this stuff uh, to them during, during that time. Covenant theologians, which by the way, I didn't mention this when I talked about that, tend to be either amillennialists which means they don't believe in a millennium at all, if you'll remember back to week one, or they tend to be historic premillennialists, um, meaning, or you may want to say it like this, post-tribulation uh, millennialists, because uh, they believe, historic premillennialists believe in a, the, a return of Jesus, not at the beginning of the tribulation, but at the end of the tribulation and before the millennial reign of Christ. And these people will often have different answers depending on who you ask and depending on how far along that sliding scale of covenant theology these people find themselves. So sometimes, yes, to the first question, but most often they're going to say no to the second one. So most often, or sometimes at least, covenant theologians will say, yes, 
there is some legitimate, particularly those who are historic premillennialists, which is what I, I told you, that's what I am, would say, I can see um, fulfillment of certain, certain, particularly earthly promises to an ethnic people group in Israel, in the promised land, during the millennial reign of Christ, Jesus sitting on the throne of David. I can, I can see that. I'm going to come back to that for a minute. But most, if not all, uh, covenant theologians will say the modern state of Israel that exists over there is no different than any other nation that exists on the, on the planet today. That that is not any kind of biblical sign that we are now all of a sudden uh, at, at the end. Um, that it, it's, while certainly under the providential hand of God that Israel exists, it is no more or no less under the providential hand of God that America exists or that China exists, that, that God is the one who establishes borders and ruling of kings, the scripture uh, tell us, right? And that, that, I'm looking at my time. Oh, I've already gone past seven o'clock. So let me come back just quickly to that first one, right? So I said, historic premillennialist, covenant, progressive covenant theology, that's kind of where I find myself in this would say, yeah, I could see that. I could see God doing that. But I would, I would caveat that with this, that when 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, that's Jesus, this is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory, that I can't hang any, any promise of the Old Testament. I can't speak definitively and say, that it has to be fulfilled to Israel because Paul wrote, all the promises of God find their yes in him. So if all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, while some may find further fulfillment, right? Inaugurated eschatology, now and not yet. Some may still have a not yet component for the for ethnic Israel. And I'm perfectly fine with that happening during the millennium and actually believe that some of it will. I believe some of it will, but I don't have a defined system of which ones of those things will and which ones of them won't. Dispensationalists will have a defined system of that. And I don't have a defined system of it because I tend to put all of the yes on Jesus, that Jesus is that ultimate fulfillment of all Old Testament promises, regardless of who they were made to and regardless of what they were made about, they all find their yes in Jesus and in Jesus, the church has been grafted into the people of God for all time. And that the church then, when we get to the millennium, and I do believe in a millennial reign of Jesus, that the church then will share in at least some and maybe even all of the inheritance of, of Israel. So while a dispensationalist say it's going to be Israel ruling with Jesus for that thousand years, I would say it's going to be the people of God, that, that one line of faith. And I would go to a passage like 1 Peter 2, but you are a, rose, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellency of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people, um, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And, and we know from First uh, Peter, Peter's writing exclusively to Gentiles. This is an exclusive Gentile church. And he's saying, you are all of these things, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people of his own possession, which are things that 
Israel was. So we share in, we are now children of Abraham, right? Go to Galatians 3, for as many of you are baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. So I believe the church of God, the people of God, Israel and saved by faith in Jesus, looking back, New Testament age, Jews and Gentiles, all one line of faith, all going to inherit whatever, because we are heirs now of that promise. So I don't see any biblical reason that the modern state of Israel exists to fulfill any prophecy. It's okay if you do, I don't. Um, And um, I I do tend to think that there will be some uh, physical fulfillment of Old Testament promises to Israel, but we as adopted children into that will share alongside of it. So kind of three distinct positions that end up leading you to three fairly distinct answers with a lot of nuance in between, all right? But you can kind of see why, just as it was in that first week when I said, what you believe about the millennium is gonna really influence, if you start backwards and work forwards, uh, it's really gonna influence what you believe about a lot of the other stuff. Now I'm moving to the, to the front and kind of moving back and, and saying, these are two big questions. The first question I asked and the last question I asked in this four-week series are kind of what's going to define a lot of these smaller questions uh, that, that you may have. So that's what I've got. And so we've got 23 minutes, and I may get home and tell my wife, man, I should not have done this. But here we go. If you have questions, the only thing I'm going to ask is you go to the microphone so the people at home can hear you and that you be satisfied if I tell you I don't know. Who will be first? Come on, Steve, you told me you had some. Somebody, I, got 20, I got to fill 22 minutes. There's people watching at home. Thousands of people, not really. But. The You told me last week, you said, I'm going to save questions. I got questions. So let's do it. So so I I believe in pre-trib and you and I've had that conversation. Mm -hmm. So if we are in your viewpoint, if we are to endure parts of the tribulation, Mm -hmm. what is the best way to present preparation for that? The best way to present preparation. Well, I would think, so I I don't really separate, even though I do tend to believe there's going to be a a distinct period of time right before the end that gets worse, okay? One of the things about historic premillennialism, which I recognize, by the way, I've told some of you this, I recognize I'm probably in the minority in this room and that's okay. I mean, it's all right. Read the books. Um, Here's, here, here's, here's one of the freedoms of that. You, within that system, the numbers become less rigid, all right? So within historic premillennialism, there are people that would hold to a literal seven-year tribulation, right? And a literal thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. Also within that are some people that would say that seven-year period it's going to be a really bad time right before the end, but it doesn't have to be seven years to the date. So it's not like a literal seven years, 
but it's going to be a period of time, okay? The same way with the millennium. There's a literal millennial reign of Christ, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a thousand years to the day that the number 1,000 carries some figurative meaning too. It's just going to be a really long period of time that's represented in that number 1,000. I tend to be in that second group that, that says... I think both of those are actual events. I believe that an actual great tribulation, I believe in an actual millennium, but I'm not, I'm not sitting there with a stopwatch going, oh, we got, you know, two and a half years left. We got three and a half minutes left. You know, I just, I think we can, I think we can find the, break the difference in those. So I say that to say this, I do believe there's going to be that, that period of time, but I would not encourage anyone to prepare for it. And I don't think the Bible encourages anyone to prepare for it any different than anyone else of any Christian age ever has. I think the instructions of scripture, and this is one of the things that led me down this path. I think the instructions of scripture are equally valid for every generation since Pentecost, that every generation should hear scripture and it means what it means. It doesn't mean something different now. It can't, mean, it's, it's, it can't mean something now that it didn't mean then. It means what it means. So, that, so a lot of this is based off of hermeneutics. And we did a hermeneutics series last spring. And a lot of this is based off my hermeneutics. The text means what it means, right? And so I would say that any passage that deals with tribulation, I introduced what I said last week, what are there, 25 times the term tribulation is used in the, in the New Testament. And the vast majority of them are just translated trials, right? Persecution that, that every generation of Christians are going to experience these things. And so what do we do? What's our response to that, right? It's the whole armor of God that we, we put on the whole armor of God and we live in faith and obedience, regardless of what happens around us, right? So we live in a relatively free society that, I mean, we're gathered here, right? And there are people around the planet who live in controlled societies and the Bible is saying the same thing to us and to them, right? Live in faith and obedience, no matter if Kim Jong-un is your dictator or Joe Biden is your president. Doesn't, it doesn't matter because the response is always gonna be the same, right? That we're, we're to live in, in the midst of tri tribulation, we're to live in the midst of trial. I actually believe the Bible promises persecution that these things are coming and we live in faith and obedience through it and um, God delivers us. Yeah. Do you have another one? I'm thinking. Okay. Jay Brun. I figure if I stretch out my answers long, I don't have to answer too many. All huh. right, so this is a question more directly directed to you, not necessarily a Bible-specific. Okay. But like... Um, we talked a lot about in this series the two facets of premillennialism. Yes. What is your uh, maybe best argument or best reason, rationale for why you're not in the amillennial or postmillennial camps? I, I guess there's. Yeah, postmillennial is an easy one, okay? Postmillennialism, the best argument is things are getting worse, they're not getting better, okay? And I think. Anybody want to disagree with me on that? Because I think that's pretty easy. And so things are getting worse, not better. And, and I think that's, that's an easy one there for me. Although there are scholars who would, who would, argue, or would argue with that. Um, my, my argument for, 
against amillennialism. And there's probably a couple. So amillennialism sees revelation as this retelling of the church age kind of cyclically, right? And they put a really hard break. They have to between Genesis, um, between Genesis 19 and Genesis 20. And I, you read that and it does not read a hard, it do, I don't read a hard break. I read a continue, right? Return millennium, not end of one cycle, beginning of another cycle, right? Of telling the same story. Cause that's how most amillennials read Revelation is it's this cycle. And I do believe Revelation is a cycle. I, I, I presented that. I think the judgments are cycles, which by the way, that's how you're supposed to read John and the book, and the book of first John too. He's cyclical in his writing. And so I think John actually does that, but I think he breaks that there. And amillennialists want to start another cycle at, at Revelation 20. And I'm definitively not convinced that, that that's there. I did show you that amillennialist book and said, you know, and I read through that. I was like, oh, this, this guy's making some good arguments. So I think there's arguments there. I know of amillennialists in our, in our church. Uh, one who likes to challenge me on this stuff fairly regularly, not Jay, he's not here. Um, and so it's, it's, it's great. Like, I, I think it's a, a fine thing to be. I just am, I, I tend to think um, that a, a earthly reign of Jesus for at least, if not a literal thousand years, an extended period of time uh, sows some things up a little better for me than return and poof. Right, yeah. I've come close before, though. I can't get over the end. I can't get over it starting a new cycle at twenty. Though I struggle with that. Somebody want to argue the post-millennial view? Come to the microphone. Let's go. <laughs> so I would not consider myself in this camp, but I have heard the argument, and perhaps you can help me understand a little bit better. Um, it's like, well, what if we are still in the early church? Uh-huh. Then are we looking at it too myopically? As in like, oh, well, like, you know. It's a great question. And it's one I think we do need to deal with. I think we all need to be able to say, because by the way, you do realize every generation, there's writings that go back hundreds of years and every generation thought it was them. Every one of them. And anybody that's named a date has been wrong, right? So you gotta be, you gotta be pretty brash to name a date 2,000 years later. Um, but even amongst that, you, every generation has thought, I mean, you go back to the 1800s, the 1700s, you go back to the early church fathers, the, the patristics. It's happening any day, which we get that because scripture, le- I think we're supposed to think that. I think everybody is supposed to live with that kind of urgency, right? So I do think it is healthy first to be driven by that scripture towards that urgency. But I also think we do need to back up and say, what if it's another 10,000 years? It's been two. What if it's another 10? What if it's another 50? What if we are in the earliest stages of this? So yes, that is a, that, that is a, I've lost the word that I'm looking for. That's not a biblical argument that post, that post millennialists make. Uh, it's more of just like a thought experiment. And, and it's a good, it'll make you think about it, right? 
But I still think the course of history and I, it, it is showing us things getting worse, not getting better. Um, and I think their biblical argument is pretty weak. <laughs> so there's always that. But the easy thing to fall back on is like, man, stuff just seems to be getting worse and worse and worse, you know? So you can ask another one. That's fine. All right. Yeah. I don't want to deter anyone else, but uh, I guess... So I come, I started watching like the Jeff Durbin mm-hmm. YouTube evangelism and then fell down like his sermons are like post-millennialism, post-millennialism, post And so like start listening enough of those and you start asking real questions. And he's the guy arguing for a theonomy, right? Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which, which is tied to post-millennialism. So if you don't know what that means, this is the, the new post-millennialism is tied to an idea known as theonomy, that we should, that Christians should be working towards true, like we should be seeking to establish a law-based, and this is probably an oversimplification, but a law-based government. And not laws in like law, but like law-based government. That we ought to legalize Christianity and not as in Constantine did, but as in like Christianity becomes the law of the land kind of deal. Because in their mind, that has to happen. Obviously that's got to happen, right? If, if, Post-millennium is going to play out. And there's a group, there's people pushing it. They make compelling arguments. I just think they're wrong. They so, probably know. I, I just, I've never, be honest with you, I've never had lengthy exposure to one. I can present the amillennialist position pretty good. I can present the dispensationalist position pretty good because I wear one. Uh, I can present the historic uh, pre-mill position pretty good because I currently am one. Who knows what I'll be tomorrow. But that's, uh, that's, that's one that I've just not done a lot of yeah. digging on. And it's easy for me to say, God, it, most of that went away. It has revived a little though. It's interesting. It's yeah. going to be interesting to see what happens 20 years from now. Lord Terry's. Because I so. guess one of the things they point to is like uh, Psalm 110 is being most quoted passage in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Like the whole enemies as a footstool for your feet being this like, triumph of Jesus over the long arc of history over various... Yeah, I think the enemies are already the foot. Of course, inaugurated in eschatology. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. I would say on the throne of David now, a dispensationalist would say, nope, it's not the throne of David now. It's going to be the throne of David later, and that's fine. Um, But I think Jesus, regardless, I think Jesus' enemies are in a now sense, his, his footstools, in a not yet sense... It comes when he fully defeats sin and death. But Jesus has already defeated it, right? We can say both Jesus has defeated sin and death and that Jesus will defeat sin and death. You know that, right? We can affirm both of those things to be true because the Bible says both of those things are true. So we can hold that tension. That's, that, that's the now, not yet. So Somebody has lined up behind you now. So. Another question from one of our elders. The marriage feast of the lamb, uh-huh. the marriage supper of the lamb, is that a literal event? <laughs> if you are a dispensationalist, it is certainly a literal event, right? And that's, that, and that's a big part of, um, that's a big part of pre-tribulation rapture theology. And one of their arguments is for a literal reading of the marriage supper of the lamb, right? And, um, and which is in, I'm looking for the chapter, Dalton. I think it's uh, the, 
No, here it is, 19. It's in 19. Yeah, 19. Then, I heard, uh, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of the many waters, like the sound of the mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give the glory. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her clothes with fine linen and bright and pure, for the fine linens is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet and worshiped him. And he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of the Lord. Worship him for uh, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, right? So that, that's marriage supper of the lamb being a literal event that happens pre-millennium, right? Is the, is the pre-tribulation view. I, I don't see that as a, as a literal event. Uh, I see it as the invitation to blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the invitation to, remember I used that terminology last week of that we go out to greet the king, that, that this, is, this is the invitation because what comes next in 19? The rider on the white horse. It's Jesus is what's coming next. So this is the, this is the marriage invitation and the, the people that we see here are, are the saints of, saints of God. So, and who is the bride of Christ? The bride of Christ is the people of God for all time is my, is my interpretation of the bride of Christ. So, but I interpret the church as being the people of God for all time. And so I would include all who came to faith in Jesus. And I believe everyone who is going to be in heaven came to faith in Jesus, either looking forward to Jesus and the fulfillment of the promises or looking back, back on Jesus. Yes, ma'am. So I kind of want to add on to that. Okay. And the, the bride of Christ, um, to me, it doesn't really make sense that he would put us through all of God's wrath because mm-hmm. um, God doesn't believe in abuse. Mm-hmm. But that would be like an abuse of time throughout all the, the different uh, trumpets and all that. I do believe, I can soften that a little bit. You're still gonna disagree with me probably, but I can soften a little bit. I do believe there is going to be a measure of protection for God's elect, for the church during that time. I, I believe it is going to, and I think a lot of that is going to be natural, but there are going to be things that are worse for people who are living in the world system than for people who aren't. And so we're going to be protected for a lot of it, some miraculously, some Holy Spirit wise, but some just because we're living in obedience to him. And what is so often, how is so often in the temporal sense, the wrath of God experienced against sin? It's experienced by the consequences of sin, right? And so I do see a, at least a measure of protection, but not the level of protection that a pre-tribulation person would see because, hey, that's, and again, I said last week, I'd love to be wrong on this because, hey, that means we're in heaven and all's, all's good waiting to come, come back with Jesus. So, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but oh, I wanted no. <laughs> to soften it a little bit. Yeah. Okay, and then through uh, on Revelation uh, 1, Verse 20, mm-hmm. when he talks about the seven churches and the seven lampstands, and, the, and he says that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Like last week, you said that some dispensationalists don't believe that uh, they use the churches as symbols, but mm-hmm. I believe that they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were really places and they actually resemble the church today. Okay. And there's people, because we are all part of the body. Um, those churches apply to what they were real back then. And they are also, you know, I can get on board with that. I can, I can support that. Yeah. Yeah. So when he does say, 
um, as long as we're affirming that they're all the real hour, churches yeah mm -hmm. the hour of testing mm -hmm. um, he says to the whole to those who live in the earth but um, as Christians we don't live in earth this is not our citizenship mm -hmm. it's actually um, in heaven that's what uh, Philippians 3 sure. says. yeah so that's kind of where I see um, that some people I mean that true believers in Christ will not be here mm -hmm. but also uh, I don't know if anybody else. No, you're knows. fine. You, you got I'm four so minutes. Nervous being right here. <laughs> this is the <laughs> this is the rebuttal time, and it was just fine. <laughs> but um, okay, going back to Revelation uh, one, uh, what was it? One twenty. Mm -hmm. So when we go to when John sees what's going on, um, let me see. Oh, and, and four, uh, four verse five, flashes of lightning and rumblings of thunder came from the throne. Seven, seven fiery torches, which in one, it says that the, the lampstands, I, I believe that those are the same things, Okay, are the churches, are the seven churches. And then in four, he talks about the seven fiery torches burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. What do you take that as? Uh, I'd have to, I might have to read it in the context. I don't, uh, let me, after the looks of a whole the distorting of heaven, what, which verse am I reading down to? Five? Um, yeah, that's in five. Yeah, I got so, time for that. Okay. After that, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the voice which I had heard speak like Trump said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this at once. So this is the beginning of the, the first vision of John after the, after the seven, after the seven churches, right? Um, at once I was in spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven and he sat there in the appearance in Jasper. Uh, around the throne were 24 thrones, seated on the thrones were seven, uh, four elders clothed in white garments. For the throne came flashes of light, rumbling, pearls of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was a sea of, a sea of glass like crystal. So are you asking me, do I think that's the church? Well, see, I'm relating it as uh, in one, he, he says what the seven lampstands, he says that there's the seven churches. And in four, this is when... John is taken, he's seeing the throne room of heaven mm -hmm. and who's, who's there. So I take that the lampstands are the seven fiery torches. I don't disagree with you. Okay. But that would be. <laughs> <laughs> Here's where I disagree with you. Okay. You're seeing it as a chronological event and I'm right, not. Exactly. I'm not seeing it as a chronological event. Okay. I do think that's the churches. I think just about everything we see, if it's not the bad guys, it's the church in Revelation, okay? Mm -hmm. I, if, so most of the time, if it's like, if it's a good thing and it's not Jesus, it's the church um, in, in Revelation. So I would say, yeah, that's the church, it, but I don't, think it's I don't think it's telling us a chronological thing that's happened. It's a, it's a, so I do think this is the church before the throne, just as I think the church is before the throne in chapter five, I think the church is before the throne in chapter, I think the church is before the throne a lot mm -hmm. and we're just seeing a, we're seeing a continual picture different each time. But they're not in order. 
But they're not in order, no. So why would you say that they're not in order? Um, because Jewish apocalyptic writing, which this is fits in that genre of, which was very popular in the first century, um, uses symbolism and metaphor and very rarely, if ever, deals in chronology. The, the goal was to communicate certain truths and we see this in one sense in the Gospel of John. We see it again in the book of 1 John that he writes in a very first century Jewish style that was different than his counterparts in these cyclical tellings of, of events. It's like walking up a staircase and you walk past the same wall every time, like a spiral staircase, you walk past the same wall every time, you just get a different view of it every time you go, you're going up it. I think that's what John's doing here. And so I, I don't see it as chronological. But even though like most, uh, there's a lot that says, and after this, and then I saw. Yeah, no, I think he saw, I think he saw multiple visions. And so I think, and the, after this is things that he saw, not necessarily, I don't, I don't read that as a statement of I'm teaching. And after this, I'm going to Bojangles to get some chicken, right? Like, I don't think that's, I don't think that's what. John's doing, I think he's showing a series of visions that, that he sees. Okay. All right. It's fine. Yeah. All right. We're at 730. That was great. Listen, maybe we just need to have a time. We can all get in a room and keep talking about it. Cause this is interesting stuff. I want to conclude with it's interesting stuff. I think some great questions. Some of you are going to lay in your bed tonight and think, what if it's 50,000 more years? Like Jay probably owned half the room, right? With that, with that question, right? I recognize some of this is going to be thoughts for you. Folks, the church has, has what I wanted to teach. This church has held these things, but we've all been the church together. Don't, don't let this divide us. I'm happy to have more of these conversations. Progressive covenantalism was by Wellam and Parker. Progressive dispensationalism by Blazling and Block, Blazling and Bach. Um, uh, a case for short premillennialism. Uh, if you were, if you're like, I'd like to know kind of a little more what the pastor's kind of thinking on that. That's a, that probably does a, a pretty good job of summarizing. I don't agree with everything in there. And then 40 questions about the end times, which is also great. Cause it's, you don't have to read it in order. It's just 40 questions. You can read whichever question you want to read. Um, and it's, it's going to be helpful. And I think he's fair in there too, to present uh, several sides. So let me pray for us. We'll be done. If you just want to ask something else, I'll, I'll hang around and be fine. God, thank you that uh, you're coming back <laughs> and that uh, we, we can hold fast, whether it is uh, this evening or it is centuries and millennia and whatever more than that could be from now. We know you're coming back. God, I pray that we will be ready because it is like a thief in the night. Uh, and we, in the meantime, are called to perseverance uh, in the face of tribulation because perseverance produces steadfastness, which brings us in more and more in line with the image of Christ. So help us to, to do that. Let us live in faith and obedience, regardless of if we find peace and comfort and safety uh, or in vast persecution like some of our brothers and sisters in Christ this, this day are under in our world, we pray. Uh, let us have the same response as them. Uh, thank you for instructing us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that we love one another even in uh, disagreement at time. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. Thank you so much for joining us, those that joined us online. We'll see you again in September for whatever our next series will be. And we'd love to see you next Wednesday night for our cookout 615. All right? God bless.